I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. We are in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And for most of you, I think a little bell went off saying, oh, yes, that's one of my favorites. That's the Beatitudes. And yes, but I am excited. Um, I've, I get a preview, and Alan has some really, really good stuff for us today. So, Alan, why don't you take it away? Thanks, Krista. Yeah, it, it, and it's one of my favorite passages of Scripture as well. So I'm excited about it. Um, every once in a while, I kind of nerd out on my preparation. And uh, as I already told Christy, I nerded out to big time on this one, <laughs> just because of how much I love the Beatitudes. <laughs> I think we need to recognize just off the bat that the Beatitudes serve as an introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And maybe that's, I don't know if that's a grand biking observation. I think most people see that. But what we need to understand is that it provides, that the Beatitudes provide a crucial context for understanding the hard teachings of Jesus that we find in the sermon. I, I don't think many of us have have not had the experience of reading the Sermon on the Mount and thinking, whoa, yeah, how can anybody absolutely. really do that? And so the Beatitudes provide a crucial context for helping us understand that. And I think in this regard, primarily we must understand the demand of the kingdom expressed in the body of the Sermon on the Mount in light of the gift of the kingdom expressed in the Beatitudes. And that is the crucial context. And, and that, that, really, that really is, and, and I, this is going to shift a lot of how you are thinking, are thinking about this or how you've heard this preached in the past. Um, but I think it's, I think it's really important for our broader theology. Yeah. You can't take these, I, we want to look at them as prescriptive, and I think this gives us a better glimpse of what it means. And so I really love this. And it's I'm, a declaration it's, of gospel. Exactly, basically. exactly. Yeah. And when we see it in that light, it 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 provides such a, not that they don't provide a comforting thought, but I know all of us at some time go in, oh, well, am I... Am, am I, I truly pure in yeah, heart? <laughs> right, right. Am I meek? Am I? And so this is wonderful mm. because this will help you see, um, I think, what's the broader picture of this. Yeah. So right. heading on. Yeah. So Matthew's, uh, and, and in this regard, I think I'm thinking here more about just the fact that, you know, right at the outset of Matthew's uh, account of Jesus' public ministry, we have this, you know, Sermon on the Mount, this Long discourse. Uh, and so Matthew's gospel presents us here with a unique perspective. The words of the Messiah, in some respects, precede and validate the deeds of the Messiah. So the, the reason why Jesus is able to go out and do the things he does is because he has demonstrated that he has the authority to teach um, uh, as the Messiah. And so it is then that Matthew's account of Jesus' public ministry begins with the Sermon on the Mount rather than with the account of his actions like we saw in Mark's gospel or even in Luke's gospel. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, we do have to recognize that in Matthew, there's a kind of mutual reciprocal kind of relationship between Jesus' words and deeds. The words may take precedence in Matthew's gospel, but the deeds also play an important role because they constitute the realization mm -hmm. of the words in, in actual okay. yeah. life. Yeah. And so both together, the words and the deeds together constitute the good news of the kingdom. And I love that. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I mean, 
So often we hear words that are empty because we don't see it in action. And Mm -hmm. likewise, actions without words don't Mm -hmm. always have the full impact. Jesus Jesus is going to proclaim the word of promise of of the kingdom, and he's going to fulfill it in his ministry. Yeah. 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 So we're going to need to back up then to Matthew 4.23 for the context of the Beatitudes as part of the Sermon on the Mount, because that's really where the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount starts. And, and there, basic, the Beatitudes basically fill out the statement that Jesus proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. That's essentially what the Beatitudes are right. doing. They're def- they're kind of filling out what it means. What is the good news of the kingdom? Well, it's the Beatitudes. That's what this, exactly. And if that yeah. you leave that off of there, you're going to miss. You're going to miss some important this context. context. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So again, while the Sermon on the Mount is filled with instructions about discipleship that may seem to raise the bar high in terms of the demand of the kingdom, we should not miss the fact that it is based on Jesus proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people, as Matthew 4.23 mm-hmm. states. So the demand of the kingdom is firmly based on the gift of mercy and grace that Jesus demonstrates from the start by healing people without any kind of reference to their religious right. status. Right. Are they clean, unclean? Mm-hmm. Are they, are they um, uh, barbarian? Are they, are they Gentile or Jew? Right, right. You know, just he heals all the people that come to him. So then the Beatitudes, again, fill out the meaning of the kingdom as grace and mercy. Mm. And, and, and th- this, is, this is, in my opinion, this is a pattern that you see throughout the Bible. A lot of people go to the Old Testament and they want to say, oh, well, it's more about demand there. It's more right. about rules. It's more about ful- obedience. Grace and mercy, God's grace and mercy is the foundation for everything mm-hmm. in the Hebrew Bible. And that's the same thing that's true wow. here in, in the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah, yeah. So what else um, do we need to know? Well, we an, I, another thing, and this is something that, that not everybody may, may be aware of, but another really significant factor for interpreting the Beatitudes is the relationship with Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Mm-hmm. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, recovery of sight to the right. blind, release to the captives, you know, all of that. And we saw that last year, right? Because Luke introduces Jesus' public ministry with that citation and and his and Jesus' declaration that today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing mm-hmm. in Luke 4, 4, 18 to 21. And, and so we saw last year that it was kind of a mission statement for Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel. Um, and so Luke presents Jesus as the as the bearer of the spirit and the bearer of the blessings of release and freedom that come with the year of the Lord's flavor. What I don't think most people I think what most people miss is that Matthew is doing essentially the same thing with the beatitudes. I think it's brilliant. I would have missed it. I, I don't think, think I've seen it before. I think most it's 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 not obvious. It's a, you know, Matthew is alluding here. He's not quoting. Right. You know, Luke makes it obvious by, by giving us the citation. Matthew is alluding and he has allusions and, and sort of resonances. And so it's not obvious. You know, I think part of this is because I just had it again last week. We're still looking at the Old Testament as the God of judgment and mm-hmm. the New Testament as the God mm-hmm. of grace. So we miss this. We mm-hmm. miss this with bridges. So this is. This is wonderful. Yeah. So, again, basically the difference between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew, or perhaps Q before him, we don't know, connects the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount with the servant of the Lord of Isaiah Mm -hmm. through these allusions, and thus 
by doing so, expands and elaborates on the blessings of the kingdom and the blessings of the spirit that the servant is going to bring. All right. So here we are. Um, I, I guess just a little bit more before we dig into the individual ones, just on a little bit more than about how you make sense of it, since it seems to be an instruction. Right. right? And, and for centuries, I think the church has read the Beatitudes primarily primarily as sort of enumerating what, what the virtues of Christian discipleship mm-hmm. or, or outlining the ethical character of a disciple. I don't think that's what's going on here, primarily. You know, some people even view them as entry requirements. You, right. have, to, you have to sort of gen, generate up these virtues in your life in order to be worthy of the kingdom. Right. That's, I, that, I don't think that's what's going on here. Now, the ethical demands of discipleship will receive thorough treatment in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Right, we all right. know that, we right? Know that. Mm-hmm. But here we need to take seriously the fact that the Beatitudes are framed in terms of blessed are right. whoever, the poor, the meek, for they will you know, inherit the, the, the kingdom or they will, they will be comforted or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all of that points us again back to the fact that what the Beatitudes constitute is proclamation of the good news of the kingdom. Right. This is gospel. I'm going to ask you a question that is coming to mind here, you know, because a lot of folks make a parallel with Sermon on the Plain. The Sermon on the Plain mm-hmm. has all those woes. Mm-hmm. So is that part of why people just come at it with that kind of assumption that these are have this kind of ethical code based on this more than a... Well, I don't read Luke's version of the Beatitudes and the Woes as an ethical, as, as, as ethical either. I read them in terms of the Magnificat and the Great Reversal. Okay. That is such an important theme in Luke's gospel. Okay. Um, uh, you know, scholars, I mean, one of the, one of the disciplines in the, new, in, the, in the study of gospels is called form criticism. And basically what you do is you compare the parallels, mm-hmm. including out, extra biblical parallels, to try to figure out, well, okay, what was the original, what, maybe what was the obsessima verba Yesu? You know, what were the actual words that Jesus spoke right. on this occasion? And then how did it develop from there into what we have into the gospels? Right. I have never found that to be completely convincing. I think there has to be an element of speculation in that. Right. It does seem that the that maybe the core of the Beatitudes is simply Jesus saying, blessed are you who are poor, mm-hmm. blessed are you who hunger, uh, blessed are you who mourn, you know, because that is so um, counterintuitive, right? Right. And, and so perhaps that was the core of Jesus' teaching, and then it developed from there. Luke developed his own right. version, Matthew Q developed a version, perhaps, and Matthew developed his version. Um, I, I but I don't see either one as as ethical uh, outlining ethical well, requirements. I, I think they're both in different ways outlining this same theme of the reversal and the promise of the promise of reversal know, in think, the kingdom. I think what I what I suggested there reminds me of probably one of the biggest errors that we do make, which is without putting them into the context of the gospel that wrote them, then we come up with some other theme about 
overemphasizing and without context the pieces that are similar. So we make these kind of leaps, these, you know, I suppose logical fallacies. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's what I just did or what I did or what I, what I am representing when I bring that up to you. Well, whenever we take a passage out of context, we do that. Right, right. right. Yeah. yeah. And so here, but these are specifically of things that I've, I've heard le- mm-hmm. recently. I'm mm-hmm. not saying a study, but no, in conversation. I get that. I get that. Or, Oh, and I, I, I even I, remember seminary. Oh, well, you have Luke's, you know, sermon on the on the plane. You have Matthew's sermon on the mount, and so your mind goes, oh, well, they they have these kind of obvious. So there must be something they're both getting at that's the same. I agree. I agree. What that is, I don't know that we can identify. <laughs> well, not like that, right? Yeah, right? But but if you put them into the context of what each one's doing, I think we actually are getting into the right. broader. And I think that's the point of that kind of endeavor is to try to better understand how Matthew has 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 um, interpreted Jesus' original words, how Luke has interpreted Jesus' mm-hmm. original words, and they're in, in, right. one of the things I'm trying to say is it sounds to me like they're both going in a similar direction. Yeah, I think I think so too, but understood within the context mm-hmm. of the lens of both of them, yep. not in terms of if you will sound bites right. coming down. Right. So it's this bigger, it's a bigger process, yes, and indeed. and. Thank goodness we have Alan's and a few others like him that can help us give us that full picture. Well, in other we, have, words, we have many New Testament scholars that I'm relying on. Well, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I gave, I put you in, into their, I put you in their group. But, well, I appreciate but serious, that. Seriously, yeah. I think that's a, um, anyway, I think this is important. So go ahead. So, you know, related to that issue of, of thinking of the Beatitudes as sort of outlining ethical demands, uh, several of the Beatitudes reflect attitudes or actions that cannot be construed as primarily ethical in nature, right? Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you say to someone, you should mourn? You should be mournful, right? right? Or how do you say to someone, you should be what um, Poor. um yeah you should be you should you should you should be going out there and trying to provoke persecution right right <laughs> i mean those aren't ethical qualities right, right. It's a, it reflects a situation, but it doesn't necessarily right. reflect an ethical quality. Right. And so again, we need to remember that in the Sermon on the Mount, blessings precede instructions. The mm. blessings of the Beatitude precede the instructions about discipleship. Right. Grace precedes commands. Gift, the gift of the kingdom of God, precedes mm-hmm. the demand for discipleship. At the same time, however... It's, I think it's also pretty clear to me, at least, that the Beatitudes are introducing the content of the Sermon on the Mount. And so they do already reflect the shape of discipleship mm-hmm. that we're going to see laid out right. in Matthew 5 through 7, which is a life aligned with the kingdom of God. Right. So right. it's not like it's totally wrong to see some qualities here that reflect the nature of discipleship. Right. I, I just think when we focus on that, we put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, I as I like to say. I, I, no, I, I, agree, I agree with that. And, and as, as we talked at the beginning, or you just, you mentioned, is trying to make these things into demands that you can't. Yeah. And so, how, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, some of you, and you probably know some of the, the, the ancient saints did try yeah. to put themselves into yeah. positions so they would meet these weird demands, I you know, know. Uh, persecuted. I know. Well, I'm persecuted because I go out and, and deny myself any food or bread, right. and then I'm persecuted by these I, images I go in my out head, into the wilderness. I, right? I go out into the wilderness to be persecuted by Satan and his demons exactly. so that I may emulate Christ. Yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. 
So <laughs> we're finally into the first beatitude. Yes. And so that brings us to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, in verse 3. Now, in comparison with Matthew's blessed are you who are poor in Luke 6.20. Luke. Uh, in Luke 6.20, sorry. Yeah, sorry. There you go. <laughs> yeah, in comparison with Luke's blessed are you who are poor in Luke 6.20, mm-hmm. Matthew's blessed are the poor in spirit has been taken as evidence that Matthew has given a spiritualizing interpretation to the more socially oriented Beatitudes in Luke. I've heard that a million times. A million times, mm-hmm. right? That is kind of the... That assumed assumed interpretation. The assured results of scholarship. <laughs> That's the phrase, right? But when we examine this in light of the connection with the good news for the poor in Isaiah 61.1, we get a different impression altogether. And what we have to do is we have to dig into the concept of the poor in Isaiah 61.1. And the Hebrew word is anawim. And the anawim in the Hebrew Bible they are viewed as poor in fact, all right? So this, this does describe their situation right. in life. But, and so they did actually face economic deprivation, right? Mm-hmm. But for that very reason, they're also framed as humble mm-hmm. and meek. They're the ones who do his commands and who seek righteousness and seek humility. Um, and so in that way, mm. the poor in the Hebrew Bible represent the true people of God, those who know their lives are not in their own control and that they are dependent on God. And that, by the way, is a quote from Gene Boring's commentary mm-hmm. in the New, in, in New Interpreter's Bible. So, so, you know, already in, the old, already in the Old Testament, the poor had kind of this dual quality right. of, yes, they suffer economic deprivation, but they also have a certain quality about them because, the, because they have no other recourse. They know they are dependent upon God and they are, right. they're humble and they turn right. to him. Yeah. yeah. So it, yeah. It, in other words, this, this kind of line in the sand that we have drawn between, between Luke and, and Matthew, Luke, yeah. all of a sudden, this really is not there. And no. I, guess what? You're going to see that Calvin actually has. Good for him. This, yeah. So. <laughs> well, and, and I'm not so sure it's there in Luke either, because I think, you know, as we saw right. when we went through Luke, we saw that, 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 that Luke was focusing on, on not just on people's social situation, although right. he was, but he was obviously calling them into the kingdom as well. Right. Right. right? Yeah, I agree. Uh, so now, one of the things that's interesting is that the blessing in this first beatitude is in the present tense and not in the future. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in Greek, it's auton esten, he basileia ton uranon. So esten, present tense, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Of I, me. Um, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, you know, I, I think... We shouldn't make too much out of this, but I think the idea is that, that there's an assurance here that those whose lives are, who are so oriented towards God's purposes, like the poor in spirit, they can know that their lives right now are mm-hmm. secure in God's hands, but also they can be assured that they will be part of the great reversal when the kingdom comes in its mm-hmm. fullness. And, and this is really, to me, right. this is the central promise of the Beatitudes as a whole, and the rest of the Beatitudes are simply going to fill out what this looks mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, this one kind of sets the, sets the stage for then how the next ones are played out. So the right. next one, the second one. The second Beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, in verse 4, Again, this might not, it's not obvious on the surface, but this continues the message in Isaiah 61, 1 through 2. Now, although it's not cited in Luke 4, 18 and 19, because Jesus' citation in Luke stops um, mm. in the middle of verse 2, but in 
Isaiah 61, 2, the quotation goes on to declare that the servant is commissioned and anointed to comfort all who mourn. And if actually the Septuagint wording of this clause uh, is clearly reflected mm-hmm. in the second beatitude. Makarioi hoi pentuntes hati autoi parakletheisontai. And again, pentheo as the verb for those who mourn, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. parakaleo as the verb for comforting. Those two words are found in the Septuagint wow. translation of Isaiah 61 too. So there's a very clear verbal link yeah. in the Greek. Wow, there. that is fascinating. Yeah. 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 So then again, those who faithfully hold to God's purposes cannot help but mourn the condition of the world in which the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, because God's kingdom has not yet come on earth as it is in heaven, and nor is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, as as Matthew is going to emphasize in, in the Lord's Prayer in verse 10, Matthew 6.10. But it will not always be so is the promise of the kingdom. And it's that's the focus of the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. when the kingdom is fulfilled, those who mourn the present state of affairs will be comforted. And the passive here implies by God himself. Mm-hmm. I, my question in here, now, this is, is this a future tense here that we're talking about? It is, about? it is. So we do get this sense that this happened in the future. That, yes. That those who mourn. They mourn in the com- present. Are, are mourning in the present. Yes. But then will be comforted. Both when the kingdom comes in its kingdom fulfillment. When the kingdom comes in its right. fulfillment. So right. they still might be mourning all the way. Yes. In present life. Exactly. In other words, you don't free yourself from this well because because when you align your life with the kingdom and the values of the kingdom it's you you know so totally like the like those who are who are described in the beatitudes you can't help but be sensitive to the right. fact that the world doesn't operate right. in those terms okay yep yep and, yep, and so good. you know it, there's going to be this um um Jürgen Moltmann speaks of this i don't remember the exact word he uses but but he he speaks of this sort of almost built-in kind of um stress or tension that's going to be there constantly for right. anybody who aligns their lives with the kingdom because the world is so completely out of sync with that yeah that makes this this makes perfect sense yeah perfect yeah So moving on, third beatitude. Yep, the third beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, in verse 5. Very likely, again, we're we're, we're working form critically here, um, trying to figure out how um, our current beatitudes got in their present form, but very likely this beatitude was composed by Matthew or perhaps his unique source. You don't find anything like this in in Luke, and that suggests maybe that Q didn't have anything like that. And one of the things that I, I'm not sure most people recognize is that this beatitude is essentially a verbatim rewording of Psalm 37:11. The meek yeah. will inherit the earth, and in the Greek, it's hoi de praeis kleronomesusen gain. That's mm-hmm. the Septuagint of Psalm 37:11, and and in in Matthew 5:5, 5, 5, makarioi hoi praeis. Hati autoi kleronomesusen ten gain. It's almost word for word verbatim. Isn't that interesting? A, yeah. a, a, a repetition of Psalm thirty-seven, eleven. Yeah. Nevertheless, I want to, and again, this is why the connection with Psalm sixty-one is so difficult to find. I want to say there, the connection with Isaiah sixty-one one is still present here because you know we've already seen that the good news for the poor extends to the captive and those who mourn. And, and so we need to recognize 
um, that if you if you so ex- for example if you if you do a word study on anawim mm-hmm. on anaw the 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 noun anaw in in or the poor in the Hebrew Bible and you look up those verses in the Septuagint you're going to find that the poor in the Septuagint are sometimes defined as ptokos which is the Greek word for poor. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're defined as tapainas, mm-hmm. which is the word for humble. Interesting. Um, sometimes they're defined as the penes, which is the, the needy. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're defined as praus, which is the word here. Uh, it's the plural in, 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 our, in, our, in, our, in Matthew 5, 5, praeis. But it's the same word, basically. They're the meek. And so mm-hmm. sometimes the Septuagint itself translates anawim as the meek. Yeah, well, wow. then, so be, many have suggested that Matthew or his source composed this beatitude, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, to clarify the first one in light of the apparent difference between Luke's poor and Matthew's poor in spirit. And mm. so Matthew is just simply trying to reiterate, you know, this right. is this is about people basically who um, have aligned their lives with God and because of it they're suffering in this world. And, and so upon closer inspection, I think the difference between Luke's poor and Matthew's poor in spirit really isn't all that great. I agree. I agree. And, you know... <laughs> As you're saying this, and I'm thinking about meek, I think for most of us, this word in English, we don't have a very good grasp of it's anyway. Tough. It's tough. Um, and so this this is actually a really kind of nice backfill mm-hmm. to make us understand whatever meek is. It's so. the same. This, I mean, all of these qualities are describing the same kind of life orientation. Right. Yes. A life that's orientated so totally yeah. toward God. Which, yeah. yeah, yeah, which again takes it away from being just a series of, mm, of instructions, yep. but rather this. <laughs> it's a lifestyle. This lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's really cool. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, Davies and Allison in their, in their three volume commentary suggest that the meek here might be better translated as the powerless because they are, and I'm quoting here, they're not so much seeking to avoid hubris, which is an attitude, mm-hmm. as they are, as a matter of fact, powerless in the eyes of the world, which is a condition. Mm -hmm. And so again, this connects them with the poor or the anawim of Isaiah 61. And so the blessing promised in this beatitude, inheriting the land, you know, Mm -hmm. in the the original context of Psalm 3711, probably referred to the land of Israel. It's the Haaretz. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's Haaretz Israel. Israel. So, um, but Matthew goes beyond that. And here in, in Matthew's gospel, I think it serves as a metaphor participating in the renewal of the whole earth. Mm-hmm. And actually, Psalm 37, 11, if you, if you go on and read the rest of the verse, it goes on to describe what inheriting mm. the earth looks like in term, or, the, or the land looks like in terms of an abundance of shalom. Mm. Wow. That's peace, beautiful. right? <laughs> and just for a preview. You'll be excited to hear what Calvin has to say about that. Well, and you know, one of the things that I love about this is the way Matthew brings in all the, most of these words, shalom, righteousness, you know, these, these are words that are salvation words in right. some context, at least in the, in the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And, and Matthew is weaving all of that into the Beatitudes. Right. It's right. really beautiful. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it is, right? Okay, so we're, we're still going on. We have the fourth beatitude. Yep, and the fourth beatitude, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, in verse 6, 
apparently reflects Matthew's modification of the original, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. I think that probably is, is probably as close as we can get to, to thinking maybe this was one of the original things that Jesus spoke right. himself uh, in Luke 6.21. And so Matthew modifies that, blessed are you who are hungry, with the additional of the idea that they are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, you know, again, uh, righteousness is a very important word in Matthew's gospel, and defining what righteousness looks like is going to be a central theme in the Sermon on the Mount. And so, in one respect, then, hungering for righteousness refers to seeking to actively fulfill God's will and God's purposes, Mm -hmm. right? So, it does refer to a way of life, again, that's oriented toward God's kingdom. But in this context... We cannot exclude the idea that the poor in spirit, those who mourn the present condition of the world, those who are powerless in this world, also long for God's righteousness in terms of his activity of setting right. And I'm using that phrase, setting right, Mm -hmm. intentionally to connect it with righteousness. Mm -hmm. Um, So God's activity of setting right all creation, which is essentially the promise of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Now. I'm going to summarize what was probably an hour's worth of work here, <laughs> and and, and uh, in that the word for righteousness in the Hebrew Bible is tzedakah, and it's translated with dikaiosune, which is the same Greek word used in the in the in the beatitude here. What we need to understand here is that tzedakah or dikaiosune in the Septuagint. Are those those words are also used in salvation context, yes, yes. right? We've, for we've God's heard those, yeah. for God's redeeming work, mm-hmm. and so um, uh, you know, yes, I think hungering and thirsting for righteousness refers to seeking to actively fulfill God's purposes in our own lives, but it also refers to yearning for God's yeah. righteousness that will put the world right, that will bring yeah. that shalom, that abundant shalom, to the world. You know. As we have been doing this podcast and we've heard these words coming over and over and over and, you know, they're always sometimes translated by different English words or we sometimes are just so used to hearing them. I even I'm hoping if you've been listening to the podcast that you're hearing um, Alan repeat these words over and over and over. For me, it's kind of a reminder of this broader image of the mm-hmm. entire, mm-hmm. The, really the entire New the entire biblical, the entire biblical witness. witness, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, so it, it's... Um, it's kind of fascinating, and here they are again. Mm-hmm. Here are these words, yep. and here is this. Sometimes, prior to this discussion today, or you know, I've just seen these pulled out and these out of their context, and they they don't feel right. But now today, they feel right. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now, you know, it, one of the you know, I, I also did a word study on this one, mm-hmm. Tzedakah in the Hebrew Bible, and looked at the Septuagint passages to see what they what the Septuagint used. All ninety-five percent of the of the of the occasions are used by are translated by dikaiosune in the Septuagint or some version mm-hmm. of it. Uh, there are a couple of places where actually the term eliemosune, deeds of mercy, mm-hmm. translates tzedakah. Oh, yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, huh. yeah. So right, the righteousness of mercy, <laughs> and and. and but there are some very key passages in the Hebrew Bible where righteousness and salvation are put in parallel. And so that's, that's the thing that you have to see just by doing the nuts and bolts kind of work of doing a word study like this. You right. find 
tzedakah dikaiosune, righteousness in the Hebrew Bible, in in passages that are in are 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 uh, declaring the promise of salvation. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So again, you know, dikaiosune tzedakah. These are words of salvation in the Hebrew Bible. So again, Matthew's beatitudes here, and and this one is no example. It, it's they're filling out the meaning of the good news of the kingdom, and the promise is that those who long for God's saving dekayosune, God's saving justice, mm-hmm. God's saving mercy, will be satisfied. And it's interesting that in Psalm twenty-two seven, the poor anawim mm-hmm. shall eat and be satisfied. satisfied. Right. Mm-hmm. So again, one of my one of the things I'm going to conclude at mm-hmm. the end is that you know Matthew is taking these these salvation themes from the Hebrew Bible and weaving yeah. them into his yeah. presentation of how Jesus frames the gospel of the kingdom. Mm, very interesting. It is. Yeah, and it just, again, it reminds me of this whole, I always think of this big arc of of, of Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. all the way through our, our New Testament is one. Well, and it's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite passages mm-hmm. because you see these themes that are clearly connected in the Hebrew Bible, even, well... When you dig into them deeply right. enough, right? Um, Matthew brings them all together in his mm, version of the Beatitudes. Cool. I love that. Yeah. So moving on, we're, we have number five. Yep. The fifth Beatitude is blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy in verse seven. Now this one introduces three Beatitudes that either Matthew or his source may have crafted. They're not found in Luke mm. or Q or anywhere else or even any other of the gospel traditions. And, and they may have crafted to reflect important ideas from Luke's Sermon on the Plain, mm. okay? okay? So so there aren't Beatitudes like this, but you do have these ideas some in, mm-hmm. in, the, in Luke's Sermon on the Plain. So for example, Luke 6.36 sums up the highest requirement of discipleship, loving even one's enemies by saying, be merciful mm-hmm. even as right. your Father is merciful. And it's the same phrase, right. blessed are the merciful, right? So we, and, and we see the centrality of mercy in Matthew's gospel in that Jesus recites not once but twice the phrase from Hosea 6.6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, if you go back to Hosea 6.6 in your Bible, it's probably going to say, I desire steadfast love because the word is hesed, which oh, is another yep. one of those salvation words, yes. covenant love, steadfast love, unfailing love in the Hebrew Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in Matthew's translation of it, it's eliemosune. And, mm-hmm. and so Matthew makes this a word related to elias, merciful. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually... You know, I think the steadfast love might just have to do. It might make more sense to the ear. Um, it English. might, but but you know, many English translations have translated Hesed in the in the Hebrew Bible as mercy. Mercy, yeah, mm-hmm. because well, it's, Hesed again, is it's one of those words hard to translate. It, it is, really is. And, and this is one of the things that I have discovered in my study of these these key salvation words in the Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. is that it's hard to draw hard and fast distinctions between them. Right. You know. Um, Mishpat, justice, relates to tzedakah, righteousness. Right. And both of them point toward shalom, peace. Right. And, and also come from, they come from God's chesed or, un, or, or mercy or unfailing love, right? Right. And, and it's all connected. It's all connected. And it's, it's wonderful. And I think if you haven't taken Hebrew, you're beginning to see one of the beautiful things and one of the great challenges of taking this language and trying to stuff it into mm-hmm. English translations. Mm-hmm. And so um, what I, I'm also loving here is I'm hoping your eyes are opening up to really the richness of this language that that words have 
so many meanings within hearing them, mm-hmm. you know? That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, another thing, another thought I had that came to me when I was thinking about Matthew 5, 7, you know, we have this Matthew 25 emphasis, right? And mm-hmm. Matthew 25, 35, and 36 um, emphasize the so-called corporal acts of mercy, right? Mm-hmm. Feeding the hungry, giving drink to the right, thirsty, right, et cetera, course, right? Yeah. Well, these provide an excellent illustration of what mercy in action looks like, mm-hmm. I think. Uh-huh. I agree. And, and that's, again, I think that's a theme in Matthew. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the promise is that those who humbly follow God's ways by practicing mercy, again, the poor, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, all that's connected here. Those who humbly follow God's ways by practicing mercy, even though it feel like swimming upstream in a world that places value on wealth and power, they are blessed because they will receive mercy from God. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Ready? Moving on, number six. Yeah, so the sixth beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is also kind of an outlier in Matthew. It may reflect the thought of Psalm 24, 3 through 4, which promises that those who have a pure in heart a pure heart may mm-hmm. enter God's presence. Um, now, there's not the kind of verbatim uh, correlation that we saw with Psalm 37, 11 in the previous right. um, beatitude, but it's commonly believed that that this seems to be the the origin for this beatitude. One of the reasons is because surprisingly, the concept of a pure heart doesn't occur all that frequently hmm. in the Bible. <laughs> you know, and and that's one that yet I think Christians would think was. Was there all the time. I hadn't really, I hadn't really thought about it. Well, before, I think but. the idea is there. It's just not the phrase. The mm. phrase is not yeah, there enough. because you know if we think about it, the idea of purity or the term katharos occurs most frequently in the Septuagint in the context of the purity codes mm-hmm. of the Torah, right? But but we should remember, even in that setting, that the essence of the demand for purity was expressed in the holiness code by the refrain, "You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy." In Leviticus nineteen two. Mm-hmm. Now, precise. You know, one of the the great debate between Jesus and the Judaism of his day was, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And of course, for a lot of people, for the for the religious establishment, it meant observing the ceremonial and ritual codes. You know, and and and, and you know, practicing um, uh, the 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 <sighs> seeking to fulfill the commands of God with all one's life, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't think Jesus had a problem with the latter part of it because Jesus emphasizes fulfilling the, the commands of God, but he emphasizes fulfilling it in a different way with a pure heart from the heart. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was precisely the debate was what is, what is, what is purity? What is right. this purity of right. heart that God seeks from us? Right. Right. And, and, you know, as I think as Psalm 24 demonstrates, even in, I think you can find that even already in Leviticus 19 too, in the, in the phrase, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. But as Psalm 24 also demonstrates, the Hebrew Bible does center true purity, not in ceremonial ritual actions, right. but rather in a way of life that comes from within. We find this in, mm-hmm. other, in the prophets, mm-hmm. especially in the Hebrew Bible. And, and Jesus it, you know, is going to elaborate on that. So this is why I think we're surprised when we say this concept isn't expressed, at least the phrase isn't the expressed, phrase, because the concept is, yeah. is very thoroughly treated right. by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And so here, purity refers to devotion to God with all one's heart, mm-hmm. the opposite of which is to, in the New Testament is to have a divided heart 
as James mm-hmm. mentions in James yeah. 4, 8, that results from attempting to serve more than one master, right, right. as Jesus will speak of later on in the mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount in Matthew six twenty four. So again, um, you know, we see the Beatitudes introducing the content that's going to come. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so then the promise here uh, that they will see God is really, I think, just another way of describing the blessings I think of so. the kingdom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that seems clear to me. Okay, yeah. seventh beatitude. So the seventh beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God in verse 9, relates to and perhaps also introduces, I think, the ideas of non-retaliation and reconciliation that Jesus mm-hmm. will expand on in the Sermon on the Mount. And so here being a peacemaker doesn't refer to a passive withdrawal from the world that operates contrary to God's purposes, but rather it it relates to an active engagement for the sake of reconciliation and wholeness. And again, that brings me back to shalom. You could bring in tzedakah here, righteousness. You could bring in mishpat here, justice, right? This this one, though, strikes me as, as a lot of them have been more of, of, of how you respond to things that may be a part of you but this is an active this is more of an it is um, it's an active active stance it is an active stance right um so again the stance of being one of these poor one of these meek one of these mm -hmm. who hunger and seek for righteousness also involves engaging the world actively for the sake of of actualizing god's promise of righteousness and peace and wholeness uh you know associated with the kingdom yeah yeah, 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 it, it, and it does fit together. It, it, this one for me takes a little bit more concentrating on the others, though. Yeah, because yeah. It, it has a little different emphasis. Right, because because the idea is that if you're really going to align yourself, your life with God's purposes, then you're going to align your life with the kingdom's right. uh, intended outcome, which is to right. bring this wholeness and this righteousness right. and this, so this justice that's going to right. go, going well, to result in salvation. A lot of these conditions, if they're just conditions. Um, um, are, are kind of things that you might rise up against and not being a peacemaker, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. makes sense within right. that context. Right, right. Now, the promise of being called sons of God here reflects the idea of sharing God's character. Jesus says, you know, that when you forgive, um, you, are, you are emulating God's character in Matthew 5.45. Mm-hmm. But more than that, the fulfillment of the promise that the community of those who work for God's peace truly belong to him. Um, they are the poor in spirit who depend on him. They are the powerless who hunger and thirst for, righteousness, for the righteousness of God's kingdom. They are those who align their lives with God's kingdom in such a way that their actions contribute toward affecting mm-hmm. God's purpose already in this world. Right. Moving on, I'm, as we're going through this, I keep wondering if our if our listeners are, know how many beatitudes they are. If they're just waiting to wait, get to the end. So eighth bat, eighth beatitude. So the eighth beatitude: Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In verse ten, has no counterpart in Luke's gospel mm-hmm. or elsewhere in the gospel tradition, and it seems likely then that Matthew has composed this beatitude out of structural concerns. Now, one thing we should note is that the Beatitudes, like the Sermon on the Mount as a whole, demonstrate a triadic structure. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're grouped in, pair, in threes. Mm-hmm. And so the inclusion of this Beatitude makes it so that the, the Beatitudes are in a triadic structure. There are nine total Beatitudes. Ding, 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 ding. There's the answer. <laughs> now, but secondly, and I think more importantly, this Beatitude corresponds 
to the first one in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for mm-hmm. theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right. Here, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, mm-hmm. right? And so the promise is repeated word for word here. Right. Um, and, and, and this basically, I think, uh, this repetition um, um, is a way of indicating that the promises in all the Beatitudes basically are all different ways of saying the same thing. Basically, namely, right, yeah, namely the proclaiming of the good news of the kingdom, right, 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 exactly. Um, and so, moving on to the final triadic piece, yes, I guess. indeed, the final beatitude <laughs> number, nine. In, in number nine, yes. <laughs> Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is something that you do find in in Luke's gospel, um, in Luke's Sermon on the Plain, and right. and it seems like, especially in Luke's context, this serves this 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 uh, beatitude serves as a bridge between sort of the original beatitudes and the teachings that are going to follow in the sermon. Uh, and we can see this, I think, in 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 that they shift. There's a shift that goes on here. So all the other beatitudes are in the third person. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, mm-hmm. you know, blessed are they, right? Mm-hmm. To the second person, blessed are you. Mm-hmm. So there's a shift that goes on there. But we can also see that shift in that the only imperative verbs in the Beatitudes occur here, and they are rejoice and be glad. Yeah. That's the only imperatives that right. you find. You know, so that's if you're looking for the ethical instruction right. of the Beatitudes, Rejoice that's it. Be Rejoice and be glad. Ooh, right? I like that. That's a good sermon title. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I might use that when yeah. I preach on this. Yeah. Because, because, you know, again, this is, this is preparing us then to receive the instruction of Jesus that's going to be challenging. Right. It's going yeah. to push us. And so, again, the essential idea is that those who align their lives with Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom and the ways envisioned in the Beatitudes may experience hardship and affliction in this world, but the promise is they will be vindicated by God when the kingdom comes in its complete fulfillment so they can already rejoice now in the midst of the evil they may have to suffer. Yeah, wow. So, I guess if we have just kind of a general statement to make about these Beatitudes, what would you say? Well, I have, I have a few takeaways here. First of all, I again, I believe that the Beatitudes serve the function in Matthew's gospel as a kind of mission statement for Jesus' ministry, just like Isaiah 61.1 and 2 does in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. They fill out the contours of the good news of the kingdom mm-hmm. that Jesus was proclaiming. I, I think they also set the tone for the mm-hmm. Sermon on the Mount with its seemingly hard demands. It, it, it's kind of like a softer... <sighs> It has a softer and a welcoming presence mm-hmm. instead mm-hmm. of a, <laughs> you're going to fail at this. Right? Yeah, you're, yeah thing, right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, well, again, once again, the basis for the challenge that we're going to find about living in alignment with the kingdom is God's grace and saving mercy mm-hmm. as, as expressed in the Beatitudes. And so, but another takeaway is the one is that emphasis that i was trying to bring out through as we went through it the beatitudes summarize the heart of the message in the hebrew bible about what god looks for in his people and as well in terms of what god is doing in this world justice mishpat tzedakah righteousness mm-hmm. uh, peace shalom unfailing love hesed 
you know, and salvation, right? Mm -hmm. Deliverance, you know? So basically all of that contributes toward the notion of the kingdom in Matthew's Beatitudes. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that in Matthew's Beatitudes, he's really kind of bringing all these strands together from the Hebrew Bible. Yes. Yes. Now, I will say here, here, and we'll 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 get get more into this in a, in, a, in a further episode. There are some who think that Matthew, the the author of Matthew, was an educated Christian scribe who would have been knowledgeable of the Hebrew Bible and thus would have had access to this material to yeah. be able to weave it together. Yeah, like this. I think that makes sense. And well, we've talked. These writers are brilliant writers. Yeah, these aren't yeah. these aren't clumsy fellows no. that sometimes people well, think. But they, they un, uneducated fishers, fishermen, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> no, and um, this is just beautiful, yeah, right? It is. And so, basically, the Beatitudes, in my opinion, set the stage for Jesus' insistence that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, because the Beatitudes sort of lay that out for us. Mm-hmm. Now, they also emphasize, I think, that those who follow God's purposes now are blessed, even though they may suffer for it, because they will be vindicated when God's saving righteousness, and again, sometimes righteousness has an ethical character, maybe mostly, you might even say, in the Hebrew Bible, but there are clearly passages in the Hebrew Bible where God's righteousness is salvation that brings peace to the whole world. Mm. And, and so, you know, again, we're the, those who follow these purposes now are blessed because they will be vindicated when God's mm. saving righteousness does is fulfilled yep, and brings yep, peace yep. to the whole world. Now, finally, the takeaway is that I, I think when we think about the character, if we want to go to that space of what is the ethical nature of all of this, when we think about the character of a person who follows path, this path, we can look to Jesus as the prime example for what it means to engage in kingdom living. So it's not just an exercise in abstraction. Right. We have Jesus yeah, providing us with, a, with an example. With what you suggested at the beginning, the words and actions go together. Yes, so we indeed. have the words, but then we have the actions. Yes, yeah. indeed. Well, thank you, Alan. It's thank great. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we went kind of long in our first segment, so we're gonna we're gonna let Christy uh, share with us what she found in Calvin, and then we're gonna have just a brief reflection at the end of this, and that'll be our podcast for today. So, Christy, um, tell us what you found. Sure. So, I looked at Calvin's commentaries today, and obviously. In our first segment, you noted this is very important scripture, and likewise it is for Calvin as well. So we want to uh, unpack some of the things he talked about. Well, one of the first themes that I found was just Calvin talking about Sermon on the Mount versus Sermon on the Plain. Because remember, again, I know I, I sound like a broken record. Every week we talk about this harmonizing effort, but again, are they the same? And um I think you're going to like what Calvin says. <laughs> um, so they recognize that much of the information presented here is also in Luke's Sermon on the Plain. And interestingly, that Calvin does not get caught up with the precision here. And he views this as a choice of the authors to offer, quote, a short summary of the teaching of Christ gathered from many and various discourses. And, you know, and, and I'm familiar with that quote from Calvin. And to me, I think it just kind of blows me out of the water because there are people today who can't even get there right, with reference right. to the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount. Right. And that, 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 that 
you know, Calvin was able to do this. I, again, I, to me, it, it bears out my, my contention that if you really read the Bible carefully, mm-hmm. it's going to teach you how to read it. Uh, and that's exactly where Calvin was. Now, he is somewhat limited. He doesn't have quite the same sophistication of resources. He doesn't have as many trans, as many ancient resources to look at. But still, he's starting to make these some of very, very sophisticated analyses that, mm-hmm. that I think gets washed over by some of the kind of extreme reformers that, that kind of... Mm, right. They were um, more literalistic and, in their and, interpretation. And that's, and that's the pieces of Calvin that they choose to acknowledge. Right, they don't right. miss the broader... One of the funnier things in this passage is chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, which is rendered in our Bible, he began to speak. But the Hebrew, according to Calvin, is literally translated as he opened his mouth. And apparently, this expression caused Reformation-era translators a great deal of concern and curiosity, and they make a big deal about it. (laughs) Um, Calvin was... Calvin was like, no, it's just an expression, meaning he began to speak. But others used it to claim that the expression gave the speech more importance. (laughs) And my favorite is that someone has claimed it symbolized that Christ had led his disciples up a mountain to elevate the level of the teaching and thus used this expression. And I just think I put this here to show just how significant is Calvin's. I'm glad Calvin was able to see through that. That's that's <laughs> uh, that's kind of crazy, you know. But you imagine all the different commentators out there, yeah. everybody trying to understand, and they're looking, they're looking for these nuances. They're starting to get into this kind of critical analysis of language, and so they get caught, just like we do today. They get caught up on a little term the like nuts that. Nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. yeah. They, they miss the forest for the trees. Exactly. Yeah. So another big theme is why the Sermon on the Mount and why these Beatitudes. Um, and Calvin in particular asks why Jesus is speaking to the disciples, and he spends some time analyzing how this speech asks the fundamental question about happiness. So this blessed, this happiness, this this idea um, is central, according to Calvin, to to really who we are as Christians. Well, and I'll, I'll just simply note and, and as a sidelight here, you know, makarios was not just found in, in biblical um, um, scripture. It was, it was found, it was used in the, in the Greek, Greek Roman right. world for, for, you know, um, expressions to define what is the meaning right. of happiness. I mean, that was, yeah. that was one of the big philosophical debates, yeah. right? Yeah. So what wake makes one, and I'll talk more about how Calvin blends into this in a little bit with the, with the ancient world, but one makes, what makes one happy, as Calvin explains, uh, most people see happiness in terms of physical comfort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just thinking it how we think today. Oh, I'll be, you'll be happy if I give you this, right? Or if that. I have a nice enough house mm-hmm. and a nice enough car and a right. nice enough retirement package, you know, I'll be happy. Right, exactly. But here, according to Calvin, Christ introduced his disciples to the idea of suffering. Mm. Um, now, I'm beginning to think, Maybe they were familiar with the idea of suffering before, <laughs> yeah. right? But I, for Calvin, this is that being his disciples, they will suffer. Mm-hmm. And that they need to be aware of that, that experience that is, is to come. Um, so in other words, he's introducing this idea of endurance and the idea of the promise of blessedness that is beyond this world. Sure. He explains that those who are in a state of unhappiness 
could also be in a state of blessedness. And I'm yeah. happy like in quotations. Right. So, um, and what I like about this analysis from Calvin is his questioning as to why Christ includes this teaching, why this is central and it is counter to the human wisdom of happiness, which is based on creature comforts. Mm-hmm. This analysis sets up his explanation of the specific Beatitudes. Well, and uh, maybe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it sounds like Calvin is focusing on the the, the blessedness of the kingdom, kind of like uh, he, I was trying he, to do. He is, and I, I think that's there, but I think it also contrasts then with kind of a behavior. I think I think he's kind of in between, and we've mm-hmm. seen that before with Calvin. Mm-hmm. He's not ready to go state that there's no kind of responsibility towards behavior with this so he's still got a framework of of this is an ethical there's some ethical qualities here i think what we see here is in calvin and we've seen this before is calvin of the commentaries and calvin of the institutes yes and so when institutes become more caught up in behavior um then you kind of get this blending together but he's starting to see this i mean he sees this as a a bigger picture and certainly than just a, a list of sure Behavior requirements. Yeah, I wanted to step back because one of the big themes in this is Calvin. Um, Calvin's responses that that, that allude to Stoicism, mm. um, and Calvin. Um, now, Calvin is part of many 16th century folks that had gained an increase in Stoicism. Um, this is just part of that kind of revival of the ancient world. Calvin yep. was really involved with this. In fact, his first publication was um, Seneca's De De Clementia. And so he knows, he's read the Stoics. And remember, prior to Calvin, these were, uh, Calvin, the the Reformation, Renaissance, these works were not necessarily available. Right, right. So there's a big interest in... Yeah, they they had gotten lost and they were brought to Europe, you know, by some some of the Jewish scholars even perhaps in some context with the muslim world as well because aristotle's works for example were preserved in the muslim world so calvin becomes quite interested in stoicism um and there's been some work done on it i i looked at a an article by jeffrey agler um that really talks about the influence of stoic thought on calvin and other protestants later on um and I guess there was a tradition, and maybe Alan knows more about this, that they thought Paul might have even been in conversation with Seneca. Well, there, that has been sort of a traditional understanding of the church, that, that Paul was at least dialoguing with the Stoics and maybe with the with the um, with you know in specific specifically with Seneca I don't I don't see any possibility of demonstrating that you know the basically <laughs> well, that was the, the middle age that, that, right that's something that came down to us from the middle right. ages which was filled with a lot of myth and well too. and the, but the connections you can see are with the the vice uh, and the vice and virtue lists that are in Paul mm-hmm. because that was a feature that was common right. to stoicism right. and as well the household codes yes. that that right. Paul had that right. was also a feature that was common they held in common and so that's where the connection is in Paul's writing interesting yeah. well and and this author felt that they had um, just this knowledge that humans sinned, humans were bad to each other, mm-hmm. and that humans mm-hmm. needed to be nice to each other, and mm-hmm. that they did, Calvin would have held that in common mm-hmm. um, uh, with uh, with the ideas that, um, um, that Seneca put forth. So yeah. anyway, um, but... Um, Back to this, uh, we do know, obviously, Calvin read the Stoics, and he commented on it. And it strikes me that he did find some admiration into the response to the world, particularly, again, this idea that we need to 
take care of each other, which was part of it. We need to be nice to each other. Um, but he also um, disagrees with the sports of that response. The question is, what is happiness? And deeper than that, the question is, why? Um, and this leads Calvin to Calvin's assertion that happiness must be associated with the why. It's not just again, all these possessions, but there has to be something behind it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really a function of theology. So Stoicism likewise has this process, but a Stoic would believe that all of life is part of this living, breathing organism controlled by, I translated reason or mind. Mm -hmm. um, um, in this world, everything that happened was part of the universal mind, and therefore people had no control over what they did, but they did have control over emotion. Right. Yeah, it was sort of it was sort of a, a a philosophical version of philosophical version of fate. You know, there was right. this yeah. this reason, this re universal mind, uh, this universal principle of reason that controlled all things and determined basically the outcomes and how your life was going to go. And mm -hmm. you know, the, the 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 gist of wisdom was you might as well just um, you know right. just let it be what it is because exactly. it's going to be anyway. And if you try to try to oppose it, you're just going to hurt yourself. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I know there was, was a kind whole of a deterministic. It was on very the deterministic. Yeah. And so the response was, you know, don't be too happy. Don't be too sad. Mm -hmm. And all those things lead to your own inner turmoil because right. you can't do anything about it. Right. Um, so again, to not respond emotionally would allow one to disentangle herself from what happened in life. Sure. And what happened was neither good nor bad, but part of the whole. Right. So. <laughs> right. Calvin, on the other hand, claimed that emotion is tied directly to our faith in Christ. So happiness, which is the topic here, is ascribed to those who trust in Christ's, Christ's providence, in the promise of life that is without the physical and mental suffering caused by this world. Mm. So that's pretty insightful, I think. Well, and again, I, I see a, a, a resonance there. It may not be directly a reflection, but I see a resonance there with the emphasis on, you know, the f faith, the promise, mm -hmm. you know, that 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 we were talking about in my segment that, that's connected with the Beatitudes. Yeah, I, 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 it's definitely there. Um, for Calvin, our emotions are tied to faith. Mm -hmm. And realizing that our suffering does not win and is actually part of our human lives. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, suffering doesn't win over over happiness, but right. rather that it's part of our human lives and that, that through our faith that um, we will have eternal um happiness well and it's it's like you were talking about earlier you know that that happiness uh, um being apparently unhappy in terms that the world defines it and being blessed are not mutually exclusive you know we, right. we can we 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 will suffer if we if we if we um decide to follow christ as disciples right. but um that doesn't mean that that we are necessarily unhappy because we are blessed by right. god right um as this, and it does not mean, obviously, that we do not experience emotion in the wake of suffering, mm -hmm. but that suffering in Christ and the emotion that comes with it ultimately manifests itself as God's blessing. You know, when I think about the Stoics, I think about Mr. Spock on the original mm -hmm. Star Trek episode of the elimination of yep, all emotion. Exactly. Because that was the idea. Is, is, is it emotion? Emotion is sort of this lower it's a human lower, mm -hmm. uh, quality and reason was 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 elevated. And, and reason meant aligning your way of thinking with right. the universal reason that was in control of, the, of all things. Well, and as I was reading this, you know, Calvinists are notoriously known for being emotionless mm -hmm. and sometimes in fact I just, deterministic as well de deterministic right yeah. and this 
idea of how many families have I left? We aren't a very emotional. Family. And I feel like their faith is kind of kind of set to the side because I don't think they really understand mm-hmm. that living into that emotion is part of um, how we're made, how God made us, yeah. and part of the blessing of uh, of love. Yeah. And so it's really interesting to see how, and I don't... I. It may be, it may, may or may not have anything to do with this, the stoicism that came into Calvin's thought later on, but, or people that interpreted it later on, it went back to later Protestants, neo, neo Stoics. Um, but it is interesting to wonder, did that impact kind of this Calvinist rigidity that we're kind of known for? Sure, sure. Um, so anyway, this is a reminder that God's providence will prevail and good will win over evil. So most of the rest of the, his analysis has this lens, which is Christian, but t- almost tainted with kind of an anti-Stoicism. So he goes. I, I of- don't blame him for that, to be honest with you, because because you know, no, while I think a Stoic would say the, the 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 universal mind, the universal reason will determine all the outcomes, and you know, will have its way with life. I don't see the phrase good will win over evil as being anywhere near the stoic point of view. You know, right. that's a Christian point of view. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so and you have to, have, I mean, that, that's a faith statement. Right. It is. And so throughout this, you know, usually he picks on, on the, and he does speak a little on the Roman Catholic church or on one mm-hmm. of these radical groups. He picks a lot on the stoics, interestingly enough. So yeah, yeah. anyway, I have some, just kind of a few specific comments about each of the Beatitudes. Um, blessed are the poor in spirit. And f- according to Calvin, this is a blessing on those who are humbled and place themselves at the feet of God. Um, Calvin interprets this kind, kind of in terms of Luke claiming that the poor are those impacted by adversity. And he acknowledged that someone interpreted poor in spirit as those who are disheartened, but he thinks the intent of Christ is those who are physically impacted. And then those folks are comforted with hope. Yeah. And, you know, that's, I mean, that sounds very similar mm-hmm, to the approach that mm-hmm. I was trying to outline. Yeah. And here he attacks the Stoics, yeah. um, uh, which encourages people to face adversity with determination, but not with hope. Right. Hope is not a Stoic concept. Nope, it's not no. a Stoic concept, right? No. So, um, and as I said, it, this is, he, he continues to mention Stoicism in this. And I picked out a quote. Um, Those who are broken by despair and shattered by it and still cry out against God must ever be high and mighty in spirit. Mm. So, yeah. Um, blessed are those who mourn. Calvin sees these as a direct response to the one above, especially when understood as a physical impact. For Calvin, those who mourn are aided by grief and that they will lead to the comfort only God can give. It seems as if physical adversity can be caused by human beings, but true healing can only come from God. Mm-hmm. While he does not articulate this here, I would argue that this construct lies into his concept of total depravity. Huh, interesting. So, yeah. Um, doesn't go so far, but as we have read that before, it comes into that you have to rely on God. So, yeah. Uh, blessed are the meek. And here Calvin claims that these folks are willing to endure and do not strike back on those who attack them. Mm. To claim that they will inherit the earth is the opposite of what would be expected of these people. To claim those who claim to control the earth are volatile and ready to call out injustice where there is not any. And Calvin repeats this proverb. I love this. 
You must howl with the wolves, for whoever makes himself a sheep will soon come to be eaten by wolves. <laughs> so Christ is saying here um, that he turns a traditional wisdom on its head and claiming that we must be sheep if we are not to be counted in Jesus' flock. Mm -hmm. So those who are sheep quietly accept the gift of the earth and their lives within it. They are not angry and filled with rage. Mm. So this is where you start to see that kind of transition, though, between just kind of this approach to the world and actually some directive right. that he reads into this. Hope versus um, virtue. Yeah, there it is. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I think that's a good way to uh, date it. Blessed are they that hunger. Calvin sees hunger and thirst as a... As Tenitiki for, um, for need or want. So this kind of makes sense how Matthew having righteousness fits within the construct of the general need. And this is a prayer for receiving what is fair and right. Mm. So interesting, he talks about the physical need, but it's not just that physical hunger here, but, but rather this kind of broad sense of, um, uh, of need. That the need have. for wholeness. Yeah, the need yeah. for wholeness. Blessed are the merciful. And for Calvin, this is those who take on the troubles of others. Think about how this differs from the actual work where those without troubles are considered blessed. And here, blessed are the ones that take on the troubles of others. Mm. So, um, and I think that's interesting, right? How often do we think, oh my gosh, you're so lucky. You don't have really right. anything affecting your life. Right. But me, oh, and saying, no, no. And saying that if you don't have those of your own, that these people are the ones who take on others' troubles. Mm -hmm. The idea that these folks will gain mercy from both God and from other people, and he believes the action of mercy will help turn the minds of human beings towards humanity itself. Mm. Um, blessed are the pure in heart. For this one, Calvin um, believes everyone agrees. Everyone agrees this, and very, but very few can follow. Purity of the heart is the mother of all virtues. Well, and there you have it. You know, I think sort of in a nutshell that he's approaching this mm -hmm. in terms of virtues that are yeah. outlined that yeah. we should be seeking to, in, you know, to um, cultivate in our lives. One of the things when I look at Calvin's commentaries is once in a while you get kind of this broad overview piece, which he did a little bit here. And when you get that, you see this kind of more sophisticated approach. But mm -hmm. then as he comes down, he pulls each piece apart, he kind of he kind of shifts to try to figure out what, what does this one phrase mean. So you see this kind of hybrid approach yeah. to interpretation. Um, and I, sometimes I feel like... Um, I feel like we're almost, re and I, I, I don't know this, but almost reading it raw as if, mm -hmm. as if you're almost reading the notes he's writing. Well, how do you write com a commentary on the whole Bible, right? Right, I mean, yeah. <laughs> plus he's preaching a sermon every day, you know. It's okay. like, uh, <laughs> right, so sometimes I feel like you're reading kind of his response mm -hmm. to it. I mean, um, he must have been sort of writing it on the fly. Right. And because it, it has these kind of bizarre inconsistencies to me. Yeah. Um, because I read, I read things like this that are just these small little soundbite analyses that mm -hmm. seem kind of unsophisticated. And then the next thing I'll see this wonderful kind of overview of approach. And so I think you see both yeah. in, in this. Um, blessed are the peacemakers. And for this one, a straightforward Calvin. It is those who try to settle argu all arguments and bring peace to all. Mm. Um, so that one's a direct instruction yeah right? sure and blessed are those who have been persecuted this one um is central to how calvin views 
the Christian experience. And I would argue because Calvin himself had been persecuted. Mm. And remember that um, Calvin and his followers faced persecution not only in France, but also in Geneva, mm-hmm. which he left and then came back to. Right. Um, and so he was aware, acutely aware, of the dangers of following Christ. And I was kind of surprised that Calvin claims that the forces of this world are controlled by Satan mm. <laughs> and that this persecution will come from Satan's grip on humanity. Mm. Yeah. Um, but that's kind of that old school view that we see pop up there. Um, but as we have seen, Calvin does not always use this type of, type of imagery for evil, and I liken it to a holdover from that medieval mindset. Still, when I read Calvin and I see this use, I understand how it comes to play in some Reformed circles. Sure. And this kind of makes its way again into that kind of black and white view of yeah. the kind of ultra-Reformed tradition. Right. These people who are righteous are opposed by those who do not believe in equity and justice. And again, he brings up the Stoics. Hmm. The difference, he says, is that Christians establish happiness in terms of future hope, where Stoics are relying on their mental capacity to decide on their own. Yeah. Here, as for a Stoic, a persecuted person would be in charge of themselves. Yeah, I guess my, my, my understanding of the essence of the, of the teaching of Stoicism was, you know, by... by, by uh, denying reason and passion and all of that, and by by focusing on human by by focusing on reason, you are aligning yourself and your experience of the world with the universal reason that is mm-hmm. in control right, of all right. things. Yeah, and and so that is the summum bonum. That is the highest right. good. You know. That, that that you can achieve in human right. experience is yeah. just to align your life with that yeah. through reason through ra- almost rationalism right. it's it's yeah. kind of a it's kind of a throwing away the higher power the higher power is just this kind of um, construct right yes. yes and and yet you can kind of see how that emerges from their concept of gods which are so yeah, no, no. There's no yeah. personal deity. Exactly. The, the the universal mind is not a personal exactly. deity at all. Not in Stoicism. But you it can is see an how impersonal. This, right. How this yeah. emerges, but how it falls short. Sort of an impersonal, rational principle. But you can see how it falls short of what I would argue is the truth of, oh, of absolutely. God's creation. Where, where right? do you find hope in a in a universal, exactly. rational principle? <laughs> I mean, what? There's no. There's nothing. Right. Yeah. So it's an interesting. Um, even though I kind of like reading Stoic, the, uh, yeah. reading this stuff sometimes it has some interesting yeah. um, points. Well, Seneca was was a brilliant guy. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, and Marcus Aurelius. Yeah, right, sure. In terms of a, a kind of modern sounding um, right. um, ruler, you know. Yeah. So, blessed are you um, when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. So in this account, there's a direct connection between the good that is in Christ and the evil and the persecution. And I was a bit surprised that Calvin did not bring in the idea of Satan here because Mm -hmm, of his earlier comments, but he did claim that what is outside the church is godless and evil and persecution Mm. that comes to them comes from those outside the church. Mm. So in other words, if you are true believer, if you are true follower of Christ, then you aren't the cause of persecution, which I think is, in other words, if you're living into maybe the kingdom of God, you aren't, Sounds like sounds like he's reflecting his own personal experience. Yes. Oh, well, then he yeah. goes on to attack the Roman Catholic Church right. and Anabaptists and, all well, the, and everybody else. <laughs> the ca- the, the, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds it seems to me that the that the primary persecution that Calvin received was from the Roman Catholic yeah. Church. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then finally, um, he talks about reward. And here, Calvin is 
totally is attacking Roman Catholic mm-hmm. theology. Um, and so obviously... You're rewarded based on your merit. Right, right, based on following these rules, right? right? And he spends the first part of this analysis attacking the Roman Catholic position on reward, that is good works will lead to reward. Um, but the reward is in rejoicing as we lift our minds to heaven. So it is not actions taken to gain reward, but rather to be assured of faith, confident that God's kingdom will overcome. You know, and, and you know, I'm thinking as I'm reflecting on 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 Calvin and 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 how he's approaching this here. Um, I, I think again, it's a matter of which syllable you choose to emphasize, right. because you know, I'm trying to emphasize. I was trying to emphasize in my presentation of the of the text that the emphasis is on the promise and of the kingdom, mm-hmm. and you align yourself with the kingdom, sort of out of this humble awareness that our lives are all dependent upon God and right. we want to direct our lives and align our lives with God's purpose because that is, you know, that's where we find our life, but also in hope of the right. promise of the kingdom that will bring right. in the saving righteousness of God that will bring peace and restore our lives and will, will set things right and, and relieve us from the, the antagonism we may face in this world. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, you could go back and, and if you go back and, and re-listen to my segment, you could hear, uh, you know, in some of my analysis of the individual Beatitudes, th- th- there are some resonances with sort of the ethical virtues. Right, right. And, and it seems like Calvin is stressing that more. A little bit more, but not as much as others, right? Not as much as the Stoics might, right? Right. Or, but, yeah. Yeah, or, or even the Roman Catholic Church I was going to say the Roman Catholic Church, yeah, and I think yeah. that's what you're coming out of. Now, remember... That, you know, because everything's based on a reward system, they're looking at following Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. You have, I mean, you have particularly um, monks, nuns trying to follow these as rules. You know, we talked about that, that, you know, I got to find, be persecuted. So where, where can I be persecuted? Right, where can right. I put myself in that These space? are steps to become worthy to exactly. enter the kingdom. Yeah. So that's still an overtone to mm-hmm. Calvin's work. Sure. I think where we don't... Um, where where we don't see that later, I mean that that starts right. to go away. Well, I think in this, I mean, you know, my analysis is very much influenced by the New Testament scholars who have focused on the message of the kingdom and mm-hmm. Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, which obviously um, uh, points toward a future hope, but it also um, shapes our lives here and now in ways that are very much countercultural. And, um, you know, and so, again, I think you have both emphases in the, mm-hmm. in the, in the Beatitudes. Right. But where I put the emphasis right. is on the proclamation of the hope right. and the good news and the promise of salvation right. in the kingdom uh, as opposed right. to virtues that we're supposed to cultivate. I agree. Uh, you know, in my mind, Matthew's Beatitudes simply say, this is the nature of what it looks like to be a disciple. And and so these are qualities that are just that just define a person who aligns himself or herself with the kingdom of God. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, I think ultimately that I just think that's the more sophisticated analysis, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that's what we're meant to see. That makes sense within my my personal theology cons and concept of of what of what God is calling of us. Well, um, and, and, and for me, I think the, the, the reason why I want to 
place such an emphasis on the Beatitudes as emphasizing this hope and this promise of salvation in the kingdom is that if we don't see the grace and the promise and the mercy in the Beatitudes, then the Sermon on the Mount becomes really heavy and really discouraging because it's like, how can I possibly ever live up to this? Can't. And so this, and I, I just think this. Makes and so, so then much more you sense. fall back into that well, notion of, well, I've got to, I've got to use the beatitudes as a stair steps on a ladder to try to climb, right. make my own stairway into heaven, right? Right. Well, and I think you said, going back, that we have to look at the context of the beatitudes mm-hmm. um, of what becomes before it, and and you did a really nice job of setting that up, right? Um, um, by looking at four, what was it four? Four twenty-three. Yeah, the beatitudes uh, fill out what it means. The good news of the kingdom. Yeah, I think that I put. I think that context is essential mm-hmm. then for understanding what comes next. Right. When we see it that way, and 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 we see it that way too. As I said, instead of these, oh, how am I going to be meek? I don't want this reality that oh my gosh, um, that's my human reality. But there's right. hope at the end. Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And, and it, you know, again, I, it reflects that in my opinion and, and, you know, I, I, I fully recognize that this is in very much in alignment with the reformed theological tradition. But in my opinion, in the Bible, grace always precedes demand. Grace always precedes yeah. command, you know, gift right. always precedes the, the requirement, you know, and, and that's true in the old covenant in the Hebrew mm-hmm. Bible. It's true in the new covenant and the new Testament. And, and that is the consistent, that is consistent yeah. in God's uh, way of dealing with us. And I, and I, I, you know, again, one of the reasons why I love the Beatitudes is because I see Matthew is weaving that together as yeah. sort of the introductory mission statement of Jesus Jesus ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you, Alan. Thank you, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together Listen Listen for for the the word. word.